Yeah, he's he's faced he's gotten to an 0-2 count on 67 hitters, and 25 of them they struck out on the next pitch. There, it wasn't on TV. It was you had to find uh, on the on the brand new thing called the interweb. And I think you may have used up our entire acronym allotment for the podcast. So try and speak <laughs> in full senses for the rest of it. And welcome to Artificial Turf Wars, episode number 15, where we only charge the mound in batting practice. I am your host, Greg Wisniewski, and I am joined tonight by Joshua Housem. How you doing, Josh? Good. You? Uh, oh, good, good. I just I have a DM here from Chris. Uh, suck it, losers. Jeez, <laughs> that's that was Chris harsh. Not, not here tonight. Um, okay, fine, Chris. Fine. See where you are next week. Okay, uh, we are going to talk Blue Jays as usual and and Major League Baseball as well. We're going to talk about the last week with the rotation, uh, specifically maybe everybody. Everybody except R.A. Dickey, who isn't even worth... It uh, just does the same thing all the time. Um, Jason Grilly, does he help stabilize this sad little thing of a bullpen that we have? Troy Tulowitzki is tracking nicely to be back on... Well, we'll get to that later. Uh, the draft is coming up. We have an interview with Major League Baseball pitcher David Ardsma, who is sadly not a Blue Jay anymore, but we're still big fans. Friend uh, of the podcast. Absolutely. We have listener questions. We have couple of do-overs uh and a reminder about our awesome survey survey where you what is a survey what is that <laughs> is it not it's, awesome <laughs> it's the way you serve things oh right but we don't have one of those we have a survey where you can win a jersey of your choice all right uh yeah so the blue jays i am told by sources went three and three since we last had a podcast that's correct sir they didn't look like they were going to go three and three. It looked like they were maybe going to go four and two. Um, but that's the way the cookie crumbles, so to speak. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it was, mu- it was much of the same, right? The hitting didn't hit much, but the pitching bailed them out. A little bit of power, but not much, as you know, situational hitting. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've actually done fairly well in Fenway. I think they're around 500 in Fenway over the last couple of years. So, as usual, if they can, you know, just squeeze out a couple runs here and there, usually on home runs, they can win a couple games of Fenway and uh, and embarrass the Boston faithful. But yeah, that rotation is absolutely what's getting this team anywhere at all. Um, who is who is our ace <laughs> of the rotation? Uh, that would be Erico Estrada. Estrada. That's our. I mean, it's really weird to be for me to think about where we were last year because last year we were having a conversation. I can recall around June ish. Um, the team was not doing well, but as things sort of started to trend back towards five hundred, when they went on that five game, uh, eleven game winning streak, I recall the question being. Who would you start in a do-or-die playoff game? And, of course, this is before David Price, and we thought Marcus Stroman was gone forever. And 
I think answer was still Marcus Stroman, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Like the question was like practically none of the above. And now you ask me, who would I start in a do or die playoff game? And you still don't know the answer, but that's because there's too many good options. Yes. It's the opposite problem. I don't. And we did not sign an ace at any point. We, we did not. Sure we did. They signed Marco Estrada. Right. We just didn't know he was an ace. Um, as our friend Mike on Twitter said, I expected him to be good. I did not expect him to be better, which he has been in almost every measure of the game. Yeah, I mean, this is basically, I, I wrote a piece at the end of the season saying essentially what you just said. It's like, you know, he had a lot of things that I, you could identify as repeatable skills from last year that could carry over to this year. But you still expected some minor negative regression, maybe at quarter run. VRA or something like that. Not, oh, I'm one of the best pitchers in baseball. <laughs> Very pleasant. It's a pleasant surprise. I'm not complaining. I just don't know what to do with that information um, other than enjoy it. Uh, taking no hitters deep into games is just something that we have not seen since, you know, Roy Halladay or Dave Steve was around. A lot of guys do well, but they get hit. And, and Marco Estrada simply does not get hit. That's the crazy part. Because, well, yeah, I mean, he was the first Blue Jay ever to go eight straight starts of six innings or more and five or fewer hits. So, lest you think we're the only ones fawning over Marco Estrada, we have a couple of clips from the Boston crew, uh, which I think I'm going to play now. Just to give an example that maybe we're not the only people who are both impressed and a bit confused about what's going on with Estrada. Uh, this is from his start in Boston. And the 0-2. There he there did. He goes. Looked like he put him away, and he did. Upstairs, upstairs, all day long oh, with that 88. Was, that was an absolute clinic. Paint 88 on the corner, down. Change up that stopped halfway to the plate. High cheese, if you want to call it that. See you later, <laughs> huh? <laughs> so, the fact that I like the description change up that stopped halfway to the plate. I, I wish Buck and Tabby would say something like that once in a while, but they, they lack adjectives, I think. Uh, there's more. Clinic piece. Jackie could not check his swing for strike three. It's just hard to not, let, you know, to not swing at that. Guys, before the game, I said he, he seems to be up with everything, and they were laughing at me. They're like, "Yeah, he, he's a flyball pitcher. He's up with everything. He gets people to miss, and he throws 88. It's impossible to to do what you can't tell a pitcher to do what he does. They'd be scared." <laughs> I love that part. Yep. Because it's absolutely true. If, if, of course and, it is. And we talked to David Artsma later in the show, and we, we touched back on that, and he talked specifically about Marco Estrada, how Marco Estrada had to, to use his success to be allowed to pitch the way he does. Yeah, because if he, if he ever went out there and, well, basically was terrible, he would lose his job. And that's why the Jays got him in the first place, because he didn't pitch up in the zone very much with his, in his last year in Milwaukee, and he led the league in home runs allowed for the first, and he only was in the rotation for four months. Yeah, and I mean, to hear it as a description, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out there with my 88-mile-an-hour fastball. I'm going to live in the, the top third and above of the zone with it, and I'm going to throw a killer changeup that guys are going to be completely fooled by. And I'm sure there are organizations that would go, uh, thanks for calling. We'll, we'll, don't call us. We'll call you. Because it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, now, we got to another interesting point I, I like in the game. Point. This was from part of the clip that you were, were most intrigued by is, once again, 
the Boston announcers trying to, I think, maybe apologize for their fans. This is after he comes out of the game. So Marco Estrada, and you hear a lot of you hear a lot of cheering, but you also hear a lot of boos from the Red Sox fans, and those are cheers. I think those are boos of respect for what he did tonight. <laughs> And we'll be back at Fenway. <laughs> I, lo- I love how Eggersley and O'Brien are like, we're just going to let that sit there. We're, we're going to take this to the dude's go to the commercial. Yeah. What is a boo of respect, Josh? What? It's not a thing. No, uh, it's not. It's a, it's a, I think, I mean, bluntly, that's the fans booing the hitters who can't seem to hit a guy who throws 88. Well, I, no, I actually, the thing is, I actually think it is something of what would be a boo of respect because that was as he was walking off the game. Like he would just been removed true in the ninth inning after giving up a hit to, I think it was Dustin Pedroia. And it's just like, who boos a guy in that situation? It's insane. I think maybe the, the other thing going on is there are 10 now to be so many blue Jays road fans that make a lot of noise in stadiums where teams are so used drowning to. them out. Exactly. It's like, no, you can't cheer when that guy's coming off the mound. We will, well, we have to boo. Like what other noise do we make to indicate our displeasure? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he, you know, he shut them down as he's been doing that to everybody all season. And she, like you said, just, just the same thing over and over and over again, fastballs, you know, he, and this is different. He's doing this differently than last year. Cause last year it was just fastballs up, changeups, fastballs up, changeups, and some curveballs to keep people off balance a little bit. Now, until he gets to one or two strikes, his fastballs, he's actually trying to stay on the corners. Like, you just completely avoid the middle of the plate and down to get those called strikes. Cause Martin can pull them back, which Navarro couldn't really do. And then once he gets, ahead of a guy it's just like okay here comes some changeups and high heat and you just don't know what's coming because they look exactly the same and that's exactly the the three pitch strikeout that he was illustrating at the start of the clip was a fastball on the black a change up to either get you to take a cut or that drops right at the bottom of the zone and then good luck <laughs> yeah good, this good morning good afternoon good night yeah and it's actually why he's walking more hitters this year just because He's being a little finer early in the count. A lot of these pitches off, just off the edge, just off the edge, and then the fastball is up, which, again, David Arsman is going to mention that. But as, as you mentioned, he just doesn't get hit because he doesn't throw anything in the good part of the strike zone until it's those high fastballs that hitters just swing under because they can't handle the rise or, well, lack of sink. So then we flip it completely over to Aaron Sanchez, who is having incredible success with completely different methodology, which I think is really interesting in the same rotation with the same pitching coach. Um, Aaron Sanchez destroyed the Tigers for eight innings last night. We're recording this, obviously. Um, with 12 strikeouts, with pretty much, I would call it, bullets and hammers. Hard, hard 96-mile-an-hour sinking fastballs and curveballs that were where he wanted, when he wanted. And they looked completely overmatched yeah they did and this has been the biggest evolution of aaron sanchez last year you know he could ha- he had the same stuff i mean the, the, let's not fool ourselves like oh the curveball is better the fastball is better. they're not they're exactly the same the difference is that now he can put them where he wants to put them mm-hmm. he can throw that hammer down and out of the zone or at the back foot of a lefty or he can drop it in for a, for a strike back door if he needs to 
and the fastball, he's actually getting ahead of hitters. I mean, how many guys did he have 0-2 in that game? It was crazy. I I have not looked it up, but I would not be surprised if Aaron Sanchez is, at, at the very least, a staff leader in the three-pitch strikeout. <laughs> um, He's also probably staff leader in the four-pitch walk, because where Estrada will lose the zone because he's trying to be too fine, Sanchez will still occasionally come out of his delivery. No idea where it's going for could be a half dozen pitches and then something clicks or moves back in and he's back on it again. Um, and that was the window of opportunity closing. <laughs> Pardon me. But when he's on the, the three pitch strikeout is, is like just so natural. It's like fastball, bang, fastball, bang. And the guy's like, okay, I better get amped up for the fastball. Cause it's probably curveball in the zone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah. He's, he's faced, he's gotten to an O2 count on 67 hitters and 25 of them. They struck out on the next pitch. That's, that's crazy. an insanely high percentage. So that's something Marcus Stroman could learn about. You don't need to throw a million pitches to strike a guy out. <laughs> um, I mean, I it would... helps when you're throwing 97 with sink that comes back over the inside corner to a lefty. Well, yeah, it's probably well, not fair. But... <laughs> one thing that I really noticed about that game actually against Detroit is Sanchez was just sort of like, I realized that my fastball is really hard to hit. I'm just going to throw it down the middle. He was not aiming for the knees. He was, I mean, he was, you know, outside, inside a bit more, but every pitch was thigh high, belt high, but it's coming in at 96 miles an hour and moving nine inches and guys just were letting them go by. Yeah. I'll, I'll wait for one I can hit. Oh, as it turns out, you can't hit it. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, and- sorry. I should be remiss. The clip that I played uh, those excerpts from was brought to my attention by um, someone on Twitter. Um, so thank you, 8 Daryl. That's A-T-E-D-A-R-Y-L. Um, so good follow. I believe Daryl also makes gifts after most of the games if you folks are into gifts. Okay. Not for but, anyway, but, th- but, th- but this is sort of, a, you, you mentioned this with Marcus Stroman, right? Sometimes stuff plays. And you kind of have to let it. Marcus Stroman doesn't have the same kind of raw velocity that Sanchez does. So he can't pitch the same way. He still has great movement, but if everything's down around 90, 91 and slower, guys can still barrel the ball, which is why we've talked about this on the last podcast, I believe, and it's been written about on our site. He's got to start changing the eye level a bit more than Sanchez did in this last start. And, you know, that might actually help him get some swings and misses. That might help him, you know, get some fly balls that don't go out of the park. Yeah. You do either. You, you have to mess with. You have to mess with something with hitters in order to be successful. Um, you have to put something else in their mind. And our suggestion is that the four-seam fastball that Marcus has completely abandoned might be something he could put in their mind. Uh, <coughs> don't know if that's going to turn out to be what he tries, but it sounds like he's trying something in his post-game comment. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, very quickly, J-Hap got lit up. Why do you think he got lit up? Well, there are two reasons. The first one is that the Jays' defense abandoned him. <laughs> and Kevin Pilar forgot how to catch the ball in center field. And then just, you know, he's a lefty facing a Tigers team that mashes, you know, they're all right-handed mashers. I mean, there are times you're just going to run into that team and they're just going to beat you. Like the pitch that uh, McCann hit out for the three-run homer that got the ball rolling was a cutter down and in, like off the plate in below the knees. And he put it out. Because it's just tailored to his swing, and but it was still a good pitch. So sometimes good teams just beat you. 
unfortunately, that's baseball. The sad you, part of it. And you said we weren't going to talk about Dickie, but normally Dickie is Dickie. Like he just throws mm-hmm. the knuckleballs and where they end up, that's how he goes. This start was actually completely different. He threw 25 fastballs. When was the last time you saw him do that? Um, did you hear his description of his knuckleball after the game? Yeah, he said it was the worst he's ever thrown. <laughs> so I guess that's when you see him throw 25 fastballs. Yeah, but I thought this was worth mentioning because he still only gave up two runs, which normally the more fastballs he throws, the more he gets hit out of the park. True. No, yeah. but I guess just sometimes when you're if you if you mix the pitches up well enough, even at 82 miles an hour with his fastball, he can get get guys out. Also, by the way, I hate MLB game day for the tease for calling his slow knuckleball an Ephus. Because <laughs> Ephuses uh, are great. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not an Ephus until it's about seven and a half feet off the ground at some point on the way to the plate. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, I just thought that was that was interesting and worth mentioning because it's unusual. Well, it it shows a guy who you know obviously is experienced and he's he's trying to do everything he can to get through the game, even if it means going off book, which is I you know admirable. And I'm glad he got through five and two thirds with it, as opposed to getting uh, slammed out around the ballpark. Um, the last two we got two notes about players jason grilly uh, the question does he help stabilize the bullpen as we put that out there yeah it's it's i mean i i think the answer to that is kind of no uh, he's he's pitched very well since being brought over he's you know he's gotten them out of a couple jams comes in with runners on gets an out out of the inning but you know the, the bullpen still needs more well just not to put too fine on a point on it, but I'd look. He has faced seven batters since he's arrived. He struck out three. He's allowed two hits, and he hasn't walked anybody. So, uh, I mean, obviously, tiny, weird sample size, but that's kind of what we expected from Jason Grilly. The ability to strike guys out pretty much at will, but a guy who is much more hittable than he used to be. Um, surprised he hasn't walked anybody, actually. That was his big problem in Atlanta. He's only, like you said, he's only faced seven batters. Yeah. Uh, no, but <laughs> the interesting thing about Grilly, though, just while we're back on the general subject, he is the strikeout pitcher that this bullpen lacks when Brett Cecil is not healthy. And and while Drew Storin is not Drew Storin. Because that's the biggest thing you need to get out of all, you know, the biggest problem that Jays have had is allowing all these inherent runners to score. And that's because they don't have guys who can come in and get punch outs. Yep. Yeah, when you put so, the ball in play the chances of anything else go up. Yeah. So, I mean, while I don't think he stabilizes the pen, I do think he helps it. Fair enough. It hasn't been, I mean, there have been some... Floyd has fallen into the tank. (laughs) Which we probably should have seen coming at some point. Well, I didn't actually think it would be like this. I I mean, he, he, what was it, he gave gave up runs in seven outings in a row or something like that? See, I didn't even notice. It was really quite bad for him. I, you know, his ERA at one point, I mean, obviously, like reliever ERA, it's kind of a skewed stat because a lot of the runners they give up aren't their own. But his ERA at one point was in the low ones. It's now 4.94. Um, on the flip side, though, Jesse Chavez seems to have uh, improved his approach. And no, he just a- loves other people's runners. He's still fine when he's <laughs> pitching for himself. <laughs> That's how you preserve your ERA. You look around and you go, is that guy mine? Is that guy mine? Is that guy? No, they can score. 
This guy at the plate, he's mine. I, I need to keep him off the bases. Oh, uh, weirdness. Um, Troy Tulowitzki is coming back, probably. Yeah, Given said that he expects him to be back Monday, which is the earliest he can be back from the 15-day DL. And it'll be interesting to see what they do. I mean, okay, Tulowitzki is going to play short. I mean, there's no, there's no debate there. Yep. But Devin Travis has not hit since coming back. No, but he's also not had a whole lot of time. No, no, no. This isn't a judgment on Devin yeah. Travis. This is, but Darwin Barney is hitting. True. Uncharacteristically. So not, very uncharacteristically. <laughs> but, I mean, Devin Travis is hitting 174, 224, 261. That's Brian Goins' numbers. You know, so I would not be shocked at all if Devin Travis sits a bit and Darwin Barney gets some time at second base, at least at the beginning. My question is, what do you do with Ryan Goins? Is, is Goins the guy you go down and tell him, go get some everyday work? Or do you actually tell Devin Travis, you get some everyday work at AAA? Goins, you warm the bench because we know what we've got in you. Well, I guess that depends on how much they believe in Barney, right? If they, if they actually really want to hand the second base starting job to Darwin Barney, then it should be Travis that goes down. It, you know, just go work yeah. on your approach and everything away from the pressures of the bigs. But I don't think they're ready to do that. Because they know that Darwin Barney is probably Darwin Barney sooner or later. Yeah, I mean, you know, when Travis came back, they handed the job to him. And it, it wasn't Darwin Barney who was going to be playing. Yep. So, anyway, that, and, that, that's, but it's just, it's an interesting thought now, which didn't seem like it was going to be. And to all of you who uh, may be suggesting that Barney continue to play short and Tulo should warm the bench, stop. Stop saying things. <laughs> Delete your account for commenting on things as well. Thank you. Do not respond to beat writers with stuff like that. It drives me crazy. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, last note before we go talk to Mr. Ardsma was the upcoming draft. Yay. Yay. I have real trouble getting excited about the draft, I gotta tell you. <laughs> well, that's why our... Yay. Yeah. <laughs> In four years, you might find out who 90% of these people uh, could have been. Uh, so there, there, there will probably be one or two names that matter here in anything that resembles a real timeline. So you well, had that's an actually idea. an interesting thought that Kyle Matt was bringing up. Kyle writes for BP Toronto. If Zach Birdie lasts to 21, he says the Jays should take him and bring him to the big leagues. I assume he is a college pitcher because this seems power to be armed relief pitcher. There you go. Throws 100 miles an hour, throws strikes. Slider has apparently moved up to plus. You know, that would really, if he is that, I mean, if the Jays scouts think he can be that good and is that good right now, it's actually not a bad idea. Because it's going to be, the opportunity cost there is less than it's going to be to trade for someone that good. Right. First round draft pick versus multiple prospects to get someone that good. Of course, you have to be convinced he's that good. You have to be convinced he can be an immediate help. And then you have to be also, in some respect, convinced you can do something specific with him after that. Which I think you could, if he's that good, obviously. Well, there actually, there actually is a belief that he can be turned into a starter, possibly. Right. But anyway, it's just an inter interesting thought. So it'd be, if the Jays do select him, I think that we can be pretty sure that 
he's going to be a guy that is going to be brought to the bigs fast. Nothing I've read says that they will, but it's you know just at least something interesting to note because most of the time they pick a guy at 21, you're like, okay. <laughs> he's 21st. <laughs> it doesn't. We'll see you in three years. All right, we're going to leave it at that uh, because we have a long chat with Mr. David Arzma coming up and we want to get to that right about now. And uh, we are joined by David Ardsma, a Major League Baseball pitcher. Uh, once again, welcome to Artificial Turf Wars, David. No, thank you for uh, having me on. It's really fun doing this interview under uh, under my sheets. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to improve the, the audio uh, quality. <laughs> Artificial yeah. Turf Wars at night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. We'll, we'll leave that one right where it is. Um, <laughs> so, so since we last spoke to you, uh, you opted out of your deal uh, minor league deal with the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, I think people would be interested maybe to some insight in how that works about about decision days and then how you decide whether you're going to stick with an organization or whether you are going to opt out of a deal that, and move on. Um, yeah, I, I guess how it starts is essentially with your negotiation. It starts when you're when I'm, you know, being a uh, free agent I can negotiate my contract any way I want, any stipulations I want. And one of the things we usually always put in is, is out clauses. It allows me um, and the team flexibility. If I'm pitching really well and for some reason everybody in the big leagues is just lights out, it gives me that opportunity like last year with the Dodgers to find a new team and, and hopefully get in the big leagues. And it worked out last year. Um, you know, this year with the, with the Blue Jays, we, we figured out a date as – um, May 22nd as my opt-out date. It was kind of a, um, I, we wanted the 15th. They wanted uh, June 1st. So we, we agreed right in between there. And when the date was coming up, I really, um, opposed, opposed to different years, um, I wasn't pitching well. N- normally, you know, especially in minor leagues, I've, I've had a really strong track record of, of pitching really well in AAA. Um, and this year I just didn't feel the same. I wasn't pitching well. I wasn't satisfied with my outings and my consistency. Um, I was getting very frustrated. Also at the same time, we had a, a lot of guys in the bullpen. We had, you know, a ton of relievers. We had eight relievers at one point and we all needed time to pitch. And so we were all kind of on a, you know, we were all kind of fighting for time. None of us were really getting a whole lot of outings. And, and when you're doing that along with not pitching so well, it's hard to get in a rhythm. It's hard to get going and, and to fix issues. And so um, seeing that I was behind you know, a lot of guys, wasn't getting a whole lot of pitching time as much as I wanted. Um, and my frustrations, I, you know, I figured it was time to take my, out of my contract and, and then hopefully you know, find a, find a better situation with a better team. And I'm curious, you mentioned that normally in this situation, you're, when you're opting out, you're pitching at your best and, you know, because there's other opportunities around the league in this situation, how do you go about finding that next job now? Well, right now I am, uh, I, I came down to just North of New Orleans, uh, Covington, Louisiana. It's where my trainer is, where my pitching coach is. Um, and I'm down here training. I'm, I'm down here. We do, we do a lot of really cool bio, uh, biomechanical analysis, um, a whole lot of stuff. We, we 
we have all my video from Buffalo and all my video, obviously the bullpen I'm throwing here. And we've noticed a lot of big, a lot of differences um, that I probably would have been able to work out, you know, if I had the time in Buffalo, but having the time here, you know, being able to, to be one-on-one with my pitching guy, I'm throwing a lot of bullpens and working extremely hard to kind of fix the things that were, were getting me off um, that were, you know, that were, that had me off in Buffalo we fixed a lot of those problems and now it is it's calling teams and really making my agent work. I've been working all year. Now my agent's got to work and, and find teams. It's interesting. You know, you mentioned the stuff that works and doesn't, I was wondering, you see, uh, I mean, I'm sure you were paying attention guys like Marco Estrada who succeed with, you know, pitching with unconventionally up in the zone, and then there's all this talk about spin rates as a pitcher yourself. Do you look at things like that, that you could maybe do differently to get batters out based on the advanced information that exists now? Absolutely. I, absolutely. All that information, it, it's a, you know, it's a treasure trove of, of, you know, of ways to get hitters out. It really is. It, and, and I've always been a pitcher that pitched up in the zone. I understand. I, you know, we used to always call it just a rising fastball. Now, you would call it a high spin rate fastball, um, you know, and in the past that was always a negative because you're, you're a fly ball pitcher. Now it's this great positive because lo and behold, which I kind of knew all along, those pitches tend to, you know, you get by hitters a lot easier. You swing, you throw, you throw past them. Um, you know, I, I, I never felt like I needed that, that some scientific way to, to, and, you know, analyze that information. I always saw it. But, um, you know, you take that information and you try to become the best pitcher you can with it. That's the key is, is, is using it for your advantage. And, and, you know, Marco Strada pitches up the zone really well and has an unbelievable changeup. I've always pitched up the zone, you know, at the same time. That gave me a lot of strikeouts, but it gave me a lot of walks, too. You know, mm-hmm. but, but um, conversely, in, in my career, I've always had a pretty low batting average against me. So, you know, the walks are one thing, but I never really had this high average. So the walks never really hurt me that much. You know, this year it was, I was a different pitcher. I could tell that I wasn't using my body the same way. I trained extremely hard in the off season to go into the season and be the best I could be. But I think with training so hard, I got a lot stronger and I wasn't using my body the right way. I was using it as the way I thought I should. But I, I wasn't taking advantage of all that extra strength and that explosion, and then it was actually throwing me off. And we found that through, again, through all that type of information, we found where the missing links were, and we were uh, trying to correct them. That's very cool. Um, so I, I want to change gears here just a little bit, um, because that is really interesting, but we, we want to go back in the time machine, so to speak. And um, <laughs> because this is draft week, so there's a lot of young men in college and high school right now who are, who are very nervous and, uh, very and nervous. yeah, and waiting for their draft day. Um, you were, uh, I had it up here and I, I misplaced the year. Oh no, <laughs> kill him. I can tell you. He was, dra- he was drafted in 2003. Three, yes. Uh, <laughs> and you were, you were a first round pick. So what is it like? being um high on those lists and, and waiting like just take us through what you, you remember about your draft day experience now we got to challenge you because you put you know you set yourself up what team was <laughs> what team did i get drafted by the giants nice you had it up you got it pulled up fast all right <laughs> uh, 
I can only have so many idea. windows open. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, so, 03, I was at Rice University. I actually just was there watching um, them play uh, LSU because it's about an hour and a half away from here. Unfortunately, Rice lost, kind of broke my heart today. But, um, but no, you know, 2003, I was, I was at Rice. My parents had moved just north of Houston, so it was about a 45-minute drive from the campus to my parents' house. And so I went up there. You know, in high school, I didn't get drafted. Very frustrating. I thought for sure I'd get drafted actually pretty high. And from what I was told was my commitment to college scared a lot of teams off, and that's why I didn't get drafted. But um, so I went up to my parents' house. I told them I didn't, you know, back then you couldn't watch the draft. There, it wasn't on TV. It was, you had to find uh, on, the, on the brand new thing called the interweb, <laughs> the, the information superhighway. The, you know, right. Dude, I, yeah, we had to find um, the MLB site and find the draft link. And, and they were, it, would, it was uh, listening. You could listen to the draft live. So from listening in, in, in high school, we knew that it would go, it goes really extremely fast. It's not like the football draft. I mean, it was the first round was done in about a minute because every team, the second the team was called, they just named who they picked, what position, what college, and then the next team went. So we knew it went extremely fast. And the draft, you know, let's, let's say the draft is going at like three o'clock. So we, I told my dad, I didn't want to listen to it. I don't want to be nervous. I'm going to be so freaking out. So we said, okay, we're going to go wash his car. So we went down to the car wash and, you know, we're, we're hosing it down and three o'clock comes and okay. So we kind of both give ourselves that look. And then about three 30 comes nothing. And I was freaking out. <laughs> and then about four o'clock came and still nothing, man. We are freaking out. We're going, Oh my God, it's gotta be the 20th round by now. And I haven't been drafted. Everything went wrong because I was supposed to be a really high draft pick. And, but, you know, I had a little struggle towards the end of the year. So we didn't know how it was going to be. And then finally, finally, um, you know, Brian Sabian, or uh, I think actually, I think it's Bobby Evans from the, the Giants called me. Bobby Evans was the assistant, probably the assistant to the general manager. I don't think he was an assistant general manager at the time. But Bobby Evans called me. And said, you know, you, you're, you know, drafted by the San Francisco Giants at the 22nd pick, and and so I said, oh, wonder, you're great, awesome. I hung up the phone, and my dad goes, all right, so what, so what happened? I go, I got drafted, you know, in the first round, and he goes, oh my god, by who? I go, I don't know. <laughs> I go, I don't know, I, I don't know. I kind of blacked out. I. I lost it. And uh, so immediately I called, you know, we called my, my mom and, and, you know, everyone that was at our house and actually listening to the draft. And, and they're like, yeah, oh my God. They, they, you know, then they filled me in on who actually drafted me. So I forget, yeah, obviously forgotten. And uh, yeah, man, it was just, uh, it was one of those great moments. And finally a whole bunch of weight was lifted off my shoulders and could relax a little bit. Oh, that's, that's very cool. <laughs> it's hilarious. Well, which team? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And we ended up we ended up washing his car like like probably fifteen times, man. And we we're oh god, I was so nervous. That was probably the worst idea ever. Was to do that. <laughs> hey, live and learn. Yeah. Um, well, you you mentioned that you'd played for Rice, and the year after you were drafted, I believe they had three guys: uh, Umber, Neiman, and Townsend go in the top eight picks, and. 
all of them got hurt. And eventually there became this reputation for Rice University and their pitchers and pitching coaches. I don't know how real that was. It very much could have just been a coincidence that those guys got injured. I'm wondering what your thought is on college pitcher usage. It seems to be a hot topic nowadays. Well, okay, so the Rice thing, um, the, that stigma was kind of there before I got to Rice. Um, we had two guys right before I was there, Kenny Bond, John Skaggs, the year before I got there, and they were both first-rounders. And unfortunately, within, I think, their first or second years of pro ball, they both got hurt. Um, you know, I obviously went through and, and, and was fine. And then uh, Neiman, Jeff Neiman, Wade Townsend, and uh, Philip Umber, you know, Jeff Neiman had a little things here and there. He, he didn't really have many, anything major, kind of like a little groin thing and a little something else. You know, and then he ended up having a pretty major issue, I think, with his leg um, and his arm at the same, you know. But that, mm. was, that was a little while later. Townsend is an interesting case. Townsend decided to take a year off and then went back into the draft. So he, he, he used his own. I mean, anything that he kind of <laughs> did, he kind of did to himself. I and he say, got picked in the same spot, too, eighth both years. Same, same spot, lost a lot of money, um, you know. And I, and I think he, you know, he, what, from what I heard is he came back the next year, was, wasn't the same guy, well, gained a lot of weight, didn't really, wasn't the same focus kind of thing. And, and Philip Umber, you know, Philip Umber just had, I think, a lot of mileage. I think what it is, you know, college pitchers get used. They get used differently, but, but they all do. You know, I, I hear stories all across the country, guys get used kind of the same way. In my mind, I don't, I don't think it's the usage that really builds up the, the problems because when we look back, we, we always think of this whole big thing, like, oh, it's the usage. Well, guys back in the day threw way more, way, mm -hmm. way, 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 way more than we did. You know, I, I've heard stories of, of pitchers in the big leagues pitching on their day and then their bullpen day, would, they would actually throw batting practice to the entire team for, for an hour and then pitch on their, their next day coming up. And no one ever even thought about it. If you did that today, people would freak out. I, for me, the, the big red flag is, is the speed gun. If you had a speed gun, if you took a speed gun out of every stadium, you took a speed gun out of every scout's hands, guys would stop trying to throw so hard constantly. I do it. I, I have to do it because I'm in a, I'm battling against 20 year olds that are throwing a lot harder. I need to, I can't just let my velocity go away because the whole sport is dictated on velocity nowadays. Someone like Marco Estrada can buck that because he had to fight so hard every level and had to be so successful. He got finally beat it and had so much success that nobody cared. But it's, you know, we judge pitchers on velocity now. We don't judge them on success. We don't judge them on going out and pitching. We judge it on velocity. So when you have these college pitchers and we're, we're going to draft them, but they, we're expecting them to throw X velocity constantly, then they're going to try to throw X velocity constantly, even when their arm is bothering them. And then you throw them that extra time and they're trying to do it again because every stadium is a huge you know, the, the velocity is getting bigger and bigger in every, the speed gun's getting bigger and bigger in every stadium. And for me, that's the biggest problem at all. If you took the, if you took all the guns out, guys would throw slower and you'd get better pitchers, you know, and, uh, and I think you'd get a whole lot of healthier pitchers. Um, there's certainly an argument to be made against the max effort um, pitching philosophy. 
Um, but I guess it, well, it's hard. It's hard because it's we have to you almost have to as a baseball player now. You know, yeah. it's all the all the high all the high prospects are all high velocity pitchers. The guys that get moved up are high, high velocity pitchers. So you have to move up. I mean, look at what we're doing. Our, our starting pitchers can no longer get probably an average can't get out of the sixth inning anymore because they're every pitch is is high effort, high velocity, you know, and we're, we're expecting them to do this stuff constantly. And then we're dumbfounded that guys are getting hurt. Guys can't pitch along in the games. So as, I mean, as it makes sense. Yeah. As it leads that way, there is a certain temptation for guys to max out their performance. Um, so I'm going to lead that into something that came up last week because there was the question of uh, Marlon Bird. Great transition. Um, <laughs> testing positive while trying to stay in the major leagues, obviously, by using a performance-enhancing substance. Um, and then you tweeted at Ken Rosenthal about that delay between the positive test and the suspension, even though he wasn't protesting it. And I, I think it's important that people have an idea about why why the CBA is set up the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what it is is um, as a society now, especially in in the day and age we are with baseball, we we expect anybody. I mean, I get a ton of tweets all the time where people just expect everybody is on drugs that we're all taking performance enhancing drugs. I think it's ludicrous. I don't know honestly where to even start to get them. Um, but it's a it's a crazy like, crazy world we live in. But the CBA is, is done to protect the innocent along with making sure the guilty are proven guilty. Um, we need to make sure, even though he, he isn't protesting it, the process has to happen. It has to, we have to go through all the right channels, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's, make sure all the tests are completely accurate, make sure all the tests have been tested multiple times. And you, you got to go through those processes. If you didn't, and let's just say you announce it for some reason, we found a giant flaw in the system. Well, the guy gets suspended, even even though he did it or not. But it's the it's the it's the process. Even I'm not making any excuses for what Marlon Bird did. I I completely detest it, and it it's extremely frustrating that guys are still trying to cheat nowadays. But the the process is what it is, and and honestly, nobody should have ever known that it that it took that long. You know, in my mind. Yeah. It, 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 it should all be done behind closed doors, and the second they're found guilty and they, and they accept it, then you, then you announce it. But, um, you know, I, I think the, you know, it's, it's, it's a strong argument whether they should even announce when they tested positive because every time it, it pisses me off because I've faced guys that tested positive while they were in that in-between phase, and it pisses me off. You know, right. I'm facing a cheater. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and it pisses me off. So, so I, I want to know, but at the same time, I look at it and go, God, I wish I didn't know. I wish I didn't know. And then, I, then, I, then I'm not questioning whether my performance was bad that night, which it probably was. I'm actually, I'm just, you know, I'm looking at it black and white, whether I pitched bad or not, instead of looking at it like, oh, God, if that guy wasn't in the lineup, I wouldn't have given up that run. I look back at, and with the New York Mets, I, I gave up a double to um, in, against Kansas City. Was it Tejada? And oh, he yes. had already yeah. tested positive, and he was going through that process. 
Well, that was that ended up being my only opportunity to close for the Mets. If I, he ended up being the tying run. If let's just say he wasn't in the lineup, I got through that inning one, two, three. I would have been at least the closer for the Mets for a game, you know, for more than one game, you know. So I sit there and go, God, if I wouldn't have known that, you know, I, I wouldn't have ever questioned that. But at the same time, I do know it, and I knew he was going through that process, and it's frustrating. Well, yeah, and, and the. The uh, the union has worked very hard to come to something that that is balanced for everyone involved. Otherwise, the owners, I'm sure, would would uh, would simply try and terminate the contract of everyone who ever uh, tested positive for anything, because um, that's how the owners work, right? They're trying to save every dollar <laughs> well, they possibly can. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think in in cases of bad contracts, they would. Oh, in cases of good contracts with good players that they think actually, I mean, in the history of the, the I think we put a whole lot of, um, we, we look at the players a lot and just say, well, the players never wanted it. There was probably, there was an age where the players didn't want it. And at the same time, I think the owners weren't really that against it either. I think the owners were seeing the numbers of fans coming to the ballparks and the the TV ratings, and they probably weren't really too upset with it. You know, those guys that were still accused cheaters were still getting signed. We're still signing huge free agent deals, and, and these owners were supposedly so against it, are still signing the guys. So at the end of the day, it's a two-way street. You know, I think now, nowadays, I think the owners obviously want, you know, the players, you know, to be found and, and caught and punished that are doing it. And the players, without a doubt, want the players that are cheating to be caught and found and, and, and you know, prosecuted through the, whole, through the whole process. But, you know, we just got to make sure that we're doing it right, even if the guy did it. And even, even if the son of a bitch did it, you still <laughs> got to make sure he has his, the full, you know, process. And, and you got to trust in the process that you know we're 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 gonna get we're gonna get him and he's gonna have to serve a suspension. Well, you certainly don't want a process where uh, an owner sees a bad contract and creates a steroid situation somehow outside of of that that independent testing process, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that's the that's the danger. I mean, that's a that's I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all by any means. But honestly, what what's what you know, if somebody can get out of a really bad contract. And we're all of a sudden, you know, if you test positive, you can get, you, get, you know, we're, you're, kill, you're killing the entire contract. It's not out of my realm to think that somebody might try to save $150 million by slipping something into somebody's something. <laughs> you know? And, I, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it's a big motivation. <laughs> it's a big motivation. And it's, and, and honestly, it's, it's a, it's a motivation. You know, when you own a team, you should worry about the dollars and cents. It, absolutely, and you're pissed off about a bad contract. I could see it happening. I, I, I would hate to see it happen, but I could see it happening. Now, you know, at the same time, you want to make sure you're catching everybody the right way. And, and in my mind, it's very frustrating that guys are getting caught and then signing good, really nice deals. Um, but you know, it's 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 a fine line because there's really that no in between ground. There's really that you got. It's really tough trying to find that spot. You can't just cancel contracts because of that danger. Um, but at the same time, you want to make sure the punishment is strong enough. You know, I've always been an advocate of 
punishing both sides. But, you know, I don't, I don't know where, that, where other players would ever stand on that. And on that thought, I think we've covered everything we were hoping to cover with you tonight, Mr. Ardsma. <laughs> um, we've gone around the bend. Yes. Uh, <laughs> folks can reach you on the Twitter. It is at uh, the DA53. Absolutely. The, the DA53, send me a tweet or uh, Instagram, the same thing, the DA53. Have any questions, any thoughts? Think I'm crazy, think I'm an idiot? Please send me, uh, send me <laughs> and I'll block you really quickly. But uh, yeah. no, no. no. <laughs> no, I'm I'm up and on there, and, and uh, send me your thoughts. I love uh, I love conversing with people on there. All right, for the record, uh, I have not been blocked yet, so we're good. Um, <laughs> the yet there is very important. <laughs> soon, soon. <laughs> All right, uh, we uh, we wish you the best, and we hope we see you in a major league baseball uniform in the near future, David. Uh, you have yourself Absolutely. a good night. Thank you for having me on. Our pleasure. are back and that was as usual a very enlightening conversation with mr Ardsma. yeah I'm- he's awesome by the way greg is like all trying to talk over a compliment from Ardsma. <laughs> no respect I, that may have been fixed by the time people hear this but <laughs> let's see what i can do um yeah yeah well you know it's hard to take a compliment you know that that's what it is it's me i'm i beat myself down that's We're, the real reason I'm such a jerk to you on this podcast. Keep, keep me down? I just know you can't handle compliments. You get all flustered and ruin the podcast. Exactly. Would you <laughs> like to get to the first listener question now that we smucked sure. around? All right. This one comes to us via email uh, from Eli Kevan. Kevin? Sorry if I don't know how to put the emphasis on that. Uh, Eli is a longtime listener, but this is the first question. Uh, about our discussion of the changing strike zone, was wondering what we might think of raising the strike zone as suggested and then also widening it so pitchers can maybe try to go inside a little more and also down and away more i also agree this is definitely something that needs to be implemented in a fresh season because of the challenge but we all agree about the fresh season josh what do you think about more changes to the strike zone as suggested okay as a pitcher (laughs) (laughs) love it no i I think it's no the whole idea reason to do this is because the, the game has gone so far in the direction of the pitchers that they want to get rid of these really, really, really tough pitches to hit. So <laughs> making the strike zone wider is not going to do that. Uh, yeah, there's already a problem with the strike zone. Technically, uh, if you look at Brooks Baseball, you can see that the textbook definition of the zone and the right-handed zone and the left-handed zone are already three different things. I Unfortunately, I don't think we want to add any more creativity and leeway. And we definitely don't want to dig up every home plate in the league and decide how much wider to make it because that's just going to be so... That would feel unfair to me. So I, I, uh, I would say no to the suggestion. Let's keep it to a minimum. Um, yeah, next okay. question. I mean, from, I think that summed it up nicely. Yeah, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I just don't want to go that direction. Uh, You want to read that one? Or or we do mid-awesomes. This is from from Danny Middaw. Would you have pulled Sanchez after the eighth? This is, you know, obviously some hindsight. This is his start against the Tigers. The Jays were running 2-0 going into the ninth, and Sanchez had thrown 93 pitches. He went back out to start the inning and gave up 
single double and the lead was and then and it was a one run game and then Osuna couldn't hold the lead. Yep. Me, would I would pull them after yeah. the I would have sent him out for the eighth and pulled him after the single. Interesting. I, my, I would have told him in the dugout, you get one mistake. I'm sorry, it's only a two nothing game. I can only afford one base runner for you. I don't usually subscribe to that kind of thinking. I don't get this. Like, if you're going to pull him after one mistake, don't send him out. It's kind of my view. I actually think letting him face Kinsler once he was already in there was not a bad idea because he's far more likely to get a double play ball or to get the ground, sorry, to get ground balls than uh, than Osuna, who's a big, you know, big fly ball pitcher. And then you know you could have gotten out of it very quickly, right? Fair, but of course Osuna is also a strikeout pitcher. Yeah, so is Sanchez. Well, especially, especially that, in that night. game. So, you know, it, it didn't work out, but I actually don't think it was a horrible decision. Yes, he was facing the lineup for the fourth time, but he was absolutely dominating, and I don't really have a huge issue with letting a guy go back out there in that situation. Um, my thing would be the guy, the guys I would pull would somehow be the guys on offense. Is there some way to pull them yeah. out of the game for their poor performance? Because that was the real problem in that game. It was not Sanchez giving up a minimal number of base runners and runs, even after he had a little problem. Yep. From the Midnight Overlord at T underscore B underscore J's. There's a lot of underscores lately in these Twitter handles. I don't know if I can take it. Um, at this point, <laughs> With how phenomenal Estrada has pitched over the last calendar plus year, do you look at RA slash nine war exclusively for evaluation? No. Runs allowed per nine? <clears throat> I, yeah, that's what it means. I mean, basically, the idea from behind runs allowed per nine wins above replacement is that it's this is what baseball reference uses is that it just what how many runs scored, not whereas FIP based war is about. <laughs> strikeouts walks and home runs only and then warp for uses dra and it uses batted ball algorithms and things like that i don't use any of them i think it's just far better to look at the components themselves like see what is this guy doing you know it's i, I look at estrada i can see why he is getting these outs that he is i, I don't need a, a catch-all stat in his case that was an excellent answer, and I think you may have used up our entire acronym allotment for the podcast, so try and speak <laughs> in full sentences for the rest of it. Okay. <laughs> uh, All right, here you go. This is a question for you, or you want to answer it? No, I, go, go ahead. Okay, uh, this is from at Colleen Evans 6. As an ump, have you ever ejected anyone? Favorite Major League Baseball ejection? What are the signs shared by home plate ump? Uh, so this is obviously for Greg because he was an umpire. That's a lot of questions. Um, so yes, I have ejected a couple of people. I, I again, I, I I umpired minor ball, never professional baseball. Um, and j there are some very hard and fast rules in minor ball. Uh, you cannot run the catcher. Period. End of story. So as soon as you come in and you're not sliding, it's it's really not the kind of dramatic decision. It's just like please keep. Okay, walking. that's not really the question though. Uh, I did eject a very angry coach once because he kept screaming while for a balk while there was nobody on base because the guy was pitching from the windup and he didn't understand what that was. Oh. Yeah. And then I ejected him from the park because he was yelling at me from beyond the fence. And then he came well, and apologized to me afterwards. 
But believe me, at 16, when he uh, wanted to talk to me after the game, I did not think that he was going to apologize. <laughs> yeah. So now the, the favorite emily ejection, uh, there's so many there. But I'm curious what the answer. How about the signs question? The signs. Um, so there's a couple of things that uh, umpires will do. Obviously, believe it or not, keeping track of the count is not as easy as it sounds. Every umpire should have a counter in his hand, the little mechanical one that tells him the count. So he's putting up, for the benefit of the um, other umpires, the count, as well as all the players. Keeps everybody on the same page. Um, when the two hands are up, that is how many, uh, that's the count. When, when his hand goes down low, you won't see it much on TV, but he'll put the number of outs down when his hand's down low. Uh, and then there's another one. If you see an umpire pat his chest, that means he's putting the infield fly on for the benefit of his partners, letting them know that that's in play. And if he swipes down on his chest, he's wiping the infield fly off that they shouldn't call it if there's a pop fly because the situation no longer applies. There you go. So there's some umpire signs. If I've forgotten some, uh, let me know. I'll be more specific. Uh, we have one more, right? Yes, there's one more. Uh, that would be from Olerud's helmet. Yes. I, ha- I have been followed by every possible permutation of equipment and or body part of every Blue Jays player in history on Twitter by now. Have I not? Probably. Olerud's underscore helmet. Any scenario you could see where Sanchez is available to pitch in a wild card game, example by skipping starts, limiting innings, yada, yada, yada. Okay, yeah, I, yada. I, I think at this point there is. Mm-hmm. I, how can you take him out of the rotation? Now, this is going to be a long conversation for the next two months. But if the guy keeps pitching like this, you have to find a way to keep him in there, whether it's skipping him and bringing up Hutchison every second start or something like that, or every or two out of every three, just because Hutchison had to be down for 10 days. I think you kind of have to. You can't go into the stretch run without a guy that's arguably your best pitcher, non-Nestrata division. <laughs> We're back to that debate, are we? Did we start with that debate? Uh, I agree. I think everything, though, the Jays have said has been, if he, if he seems like he's starting to wear down, we will adjust. It's nothing about a specific number of anything. They've talked about spin rate, arm angle, velocity. Um, but all of those are, how shall I put it? Performance measurements, not counting things. Yeah, I mean, they have this new higher performance department. They're going to measure if he gets tired, if he starts showing signs of fatigue and wearing down. And that's going to be what it is. And if he does do that, then yeah, he kind of has to be taken out because he won't be as good. Yep. That's the if thing he doesn't, it'll show, right? Yeah, but if he doesn't, I, I think he there's a very good chance he could pitch in the playoffs. Assuming they get there. <laughs> and I don't think they put him in the bullpen to do that. I just don't. No, I don't either. That screws him up, frankly. Uh, okay, we had an incident yesterday. So I guess finally people will stop talking about Odor and Bautista because now they can talk about Machado and Ventura. Um, I would just like to say... Shame on Jordano Ventura more so than Manny Machado, but shame on them both for uh, Ventura throwing twice at Manny Machado. Three times, actually. Three times. Oh, my God. Uh, missed one, apparently. And, uh, and for Manny Machado being unable to contain himself and making a break for Ventura and giving some good wrestling moves. I, yeah. Let us not glorify the violence in this game. I've had enough of it. It's really tired. Well, I mean, what's nice about this, though, the, the, the <laughs> aftermath, nice about the aftermath, 
is that the Royals are getting tired of it. And they're, I mean, even, even Ned Yost is like, yeah, our guys are, they hate this crap. So yeah, it so really it's, is, it's not the Royals now. It's apparently just Jordano it, Ventura. Yeah, and probably Kelvin Herrera too. But, uh, you know, it's like, well, this is how it changes. When the teammates of the guys doing this start saying, what the hell are you doing? Grow up. That's when it stops. Not, hey, hey, good for you. We're going to never buy food again in the rest of your life, Mr. Odor. Yeah. You know, we're going to pay your fine. You know, it's when people are like, you're an idiot. That's when it stops. Um, and, and there's apparently been a lot of eye rolling about Ventura in the clubhouse because of his constant threats and his constant temper and yeah, everything else. Saying he so. was going to hit Bautista the next time they faced each other. This year he's saying that, by the way. It's like, <sighs> why? <laughs> yeah. Idiot. Uh, okay. I mean, we know why because of the Twitter yeah. stuff last year, but, but that please. was last year. Grow up. Yeah, go hit Greg Zahn. <laughs> He's far more likely to take it. Uh, we have, as mentioned last week, a survey open for you, listeners of the podcast. Now, the link to the survey will be on this week's podcast post on the website. So please stop by and click the link. Uh, we want you to have an opportunity to win the jersey because you're listening to the podcast. So it's your opinion we really want about what we're doing here and what we can do better and what you already really like that we should do maybe more of. So there is my plug for the survey. Um, of course, do you have a final thought? Well, my, just, my final thought is just about the silliness of lineup positions that keeps going on. This was, I guess it kind of could have been a do-over. Yeah. Well, I mean, so Steve Simmons apparently was saying that Bautista, he shouldn't be hitting leadoff because last night's situation was a perfect bunt situation. First and second, nobody out. Now, it was really, really dumb because it actually ended up as second and third and one out anyway after the at-bat, so it didn't change anything. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it's just... I'm not going to go long in this. You want your best players getting your best at-bats. And so that kind of thinking just needs to stop. Yes, because you cannot predict... most at-bats. You can't predict what's going to happen in the eighth or the ninth. You can only predict that you can give an extra opportunity for your best people to be up late in the game. That's all. And if you don't think Jose Batista is your best people, I don't know what game you're watching. Um, Alrighty. So you have been Joshua Housem, which, of course, we can reach you on the Twitter at Joshua Housem. I have been Greg Wisniewski at Coolhead2010, and our guest this week was the all-time great, the DA53, David Ardsba. And we will... See, I did it. I I was so good the last few weeks. This was Artificial Turf Wars episode 15, and we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.